From New York City, New York, I'm Suzette Gorlatt, the Dean of the University of Oklahoma's College of International Studies. Welcome to Worldviews. This week, we're discussing U.S.-China relations with Chinese politics expert and Boston University political science professor Joseph Fusmith. China is becoming less liberal, not more liberal. That's what happens when a leader centralizes power. We'll hear from Joseph Fusmith on today's show. But first, Rebecca Cruz and I discuss how the Chinese National People's Congress eliminated term limits and what that might mean for this week's decision by the Trump administration to levy tariffs on Chinese imports. We also explore the new initiative in South Korea to reduce the number of hours South Koreans are working each year. President Xi is emboldened, and there is some argument that this is actually this trade war, a potential trade war, is playing right into his hands. That's all coming up after the latest news from NPR. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorlott. Rebecca Cruz, let's uh, let's start with China. Recently, the National People's Congress eliminated term limits for the president in China, making it possible now for the current president, uh, President Xi Jinping, to become president for life. There had been a two-term limit uh, that was set some time ago. Um, so now it looks like uh, he hasn't, I guess, declared, but it, it looks like that he could stay in in that position for life. Now, this is important because of this relationship, this kind of growing tense relationship between China and the United States. As it was announced this week, uh, the Trump administration has placed tariffs on about $60 billion worth of Chinese goods. And the Chinese immediately responded with tariffs of their own on American goods worth about $3 billion. Uh, but anyway, this is this is starting to kind of heat up a little bit. Uh, and, and the question is, is who does this benefit? What is the deal here? It very well may benefit uh, President Xi. Uh, obviously, this comes on the heels of a year of a rather, rather tumultuous relationship with our own President Trump, but also a uh, half a decade of China really asserting itself uh, with maritime issues with its neighbors and investing in Africa and other areas. So it really is becoming a much bigger player in the world. And as it is kind of going uh, head to head with President Trump, this is a time where the President Xi is emboldened. And there is some argument that this is actually this trade war, or potential trade war is playing right into his hands because it allows him to say that I'm going to protect China. I'm going to bring China up to the might that it should have to the international reputation that it should have, and will help, in their thought, uh, help their economy. So this was a an interesting move on their part, and it may very well help him as he moves forward and, and cements his legacy. Well, we, I might note that we are in Washington and New York this week uh, with the U.S. and the World program with students, and we've heard from many people in various think tanks, government offices, and non-governmental organizations that China is the player of the future and that these kinds of steps um, are are likely to lead to very difficult relations with these. Not that we've been friendly, but we've at least been, you know, frenemies, I don't know, some, to the extent that we've been able to uh, engage uh, and kind of coexist, I guess, um, and be so interdependent on, in our trade, but that we're looking at very, very different relations in the future. So obviously something to watch. But on, on a different note, let's stay in Asia, but let's um, shift to South Korea, an interesting development in South Korea this week. 
I didn't even know this, but apparently South Koreans work more hours than anyone in the developed world, um, over 2,700 hours a year on average, about 68 or so hours a week. And so they've passed some some laws and they're developing these initiatives that are to begin right now that that employees are to power down their computers now on Fridays at 8 and that that this will come in phases that'll be 7:30 next month. I mean, what what is going on here with this? I mean, it's a, it's an interesting move, but why? Well, there have been a, a lot of examples and too many examples of uh, employees that are having issues, mental health issues, uh, suicide recently led to this. And, and it hasn't just been South Korea. Japan has actually been dealing with this as well. And they passed similar laws about two years ago, and those have been in effect for about a year, and they are seeing some change. But what I think is so interesting about the South Korean case is there really is this honor in working a great deal and being always available. And when they were polled, government employees, 67% asked to be exempt from this uh, new law that they saw their either their role as being very important or that that somehow made them better employees or gave them better esteem or something along those lines. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out, if those employees are actually exempt or if they are forced to actually power down their computers and, and get some rest. Uh, I think this, this self-help craze that we've been seeing and the importance of actually taking care of ourselves is we're going to see more and more of it, and it's certainly becoming an issue here. But as we have technology, self phones, trade, all those things that come with globalization and have in the last couple of of years and certainly the last decade, we really need to pay attention to how much people are working and, and what they're doing to their bodies and themselves. Well, I think maybe we can identify with this. Maybe maybe we should move to South Korea. But but anyway, interesting to see that this is happening. And, and again, something else uh, that we'll be watching. So thank you, Rebecca, for the Asia update. Thank you. We want to hear your thoughts about today's discussion. Leave your comments and questions in the Worldview section of KGOU.org. Or follow us on Twitter, at WorldviewsKGOU, and I'm at Suzette Grillot. Next, my colleague Rebecca Cruz will talk with Joseph Fusmith, a political scientist who has written six books about China's economic and political development following Mao Zedong. I'm Suzette Grillot, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Grillot, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Our guest today is Joseph Fusmith, here to discuss America's relationship with China in the era of President Trump and President Xi. He spoke with my colleague, Rebecca Cruz. Joseph Smith, welcome to Worldviews. Pleasure to be here. Well, you are an expert on China and specifically U.S.-China relations. This is a, a relationship that has had all sorts of ups and downs over the last uh, couple of decades, but certainly this last couple of years, in fact, uh, particularly since the new administration in our country came to power and the administration over there has kind of uh, matured as well. Uh, how might we characterize this relationship today? Bumpy. Bumpy. <laughs> uh, I think that there are um, – uh, first, you have to understand how deeply integrated these two economies and two cultures are. Uh, and it sometimes causes uh, anxiety in both countries. Uh, but the world is a very integrated place. We now have roughly $600 billion, billion the B, uh, dollars of uh, trade between the two countries. So this is a very close and intense relationship. Well, and you have uh, leaders that have uh, claimed to be at one moment apparently close friends and at the next moment uh, things are being said from one to the other. So is this relationship between the the individual leaders, uh, President Trump and President Xi, 
is it a good relationship or, or what, what do you see there? Well, it's hard to speak about uh, their personal dynamic. It seems to have gone very well when uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping visited uh, President Trump in Mar-a-Lago in Florida a couple months ago. And uh, the president got to reveal that he had just uh, launched some cruise missiles into uh, Syria. That's right. Uh, you know, obviously, President Trump has made uh, a lot of comments about what he feels is the negative trade relationship that China is somehow taking advantage of the United States. Um, on the other hand, uh, the issue du jour uh, is Korea. Uh, North Korea. And uh, uh, I don't think there's any way to, um, I'll say, manage rather than solve that issue uh, without China's assistance. And the United States realizes this and has been putting and pressure on China. We've realized this for years. And uh, China obviously has its own interests um, that are both supportive, but also very critical of North Korea. Sure. And they're obviously in an interesting geographic location as well. I wanted to go back to something you said they thought was very interesting. Um, all of it's been very interesting. But you mentioned that we're integrated economically, which I think we, we are hopefully well aware of. But you also said culturally. How are we integrated culturally? Well, I, more, I suppose, from the Chinese side than from the American side. Uh, the United States has had a, a tremendous influence on China. Well, I could go back historically uh, in 18, 19th and 20th century, but also these last – well, now it's 70 years since uh, we've really opened up uh, relations with China. And, you know, there's a lot of foreign investment in China. There's a lot of people bringing, if you will um, – American management methods. There's a lot of tourism. But there's also, you know, uh, you you have a lot of Chinese students in this country now, something in the range of 300,000. And they're coming to this country in part because they have been exposed to these ideals of education and, and broader American culture, and they want to see for themselves uh, what they can learn and experience it. So that suggests that there is a tremendous draw uh, that has attracted a lot of attention. A lot of, a lot of these students. How do they learn English? They're they're watching Hulu and uh, downloading uh, our various uh, TV shows and watching our movies. So yes, there's been a, a perhaps a greater cultural influence than you might imagine, uh, particularly along the East Coast. Oh, absolutely. And it seems also that this influence would uh, extend really around the world. It would argue, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen China uh, have influence in South America and Africa and elsewhere, both economically and culturally. Of course. Uh, as China has grown, developed, and now is investing large sums of money around the world, yes, you are seeing considerable influence, particularly in the economic realm, uh, but it's extending into political influence and uh, you know, this is going to be a major challenge for the two countries in the uh, coming decades. Speaking of political influence, one thing we've also seen China do is perhaps reassert its, itself in the region, its own region, and maybe beyond, uh, with the maritime disputes that are going on and the extension of some of these islands. Uh, what is happening here? Is, is this China trying to become more powerful militarily, or, or is this President Xi trying to position, or, or what's going on? 
China is more powerful militarily, and uh, these are longstanding claims, uh, particularly in the South China Sea. Uh, you can actually trace these back to the late 19th century, uh, but more particularly to uh, 1947 when the then Republic of China was uh, the authority in China. They claimed those islands. Uh, that was the original the origin of the so-called U-shaped line uh, or nine-dash line that is in that area extend, um, suggests that China has considerable territorial claims, although China has never uh, specified exactly what its claims are. Right. And they're now extending some of these islands. I, I believe there's also right. some thought that there might be a, a petroleum or, or gas in some of these areas as well. That's, that's true. Uh, they have built um, land reclamation in these islands. Uh, Some of them now have long airfields that are capable of handling military aircraft. Uh, uh, This does change the dynamic in the area. And yes, there are oil reserves in the area, presumably mostly along coastal areas, uh, particularly with Vietnam and Malaysia. And that obviously breeds uh, conflict and contention with those states. You're listening to my colleague Rebecca Cruz's conversation with political scientist Joseph Fusmith. Coming up, they will discuss President Xi's leadership philosophy and the seeming contradiction between China's growing middle class and shrinking democracy. I'm Suzette Grolat, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Grillot, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. President Trump's decision to levy tariffs on Chinese imports says a lot about how the U.S. views that country. But how does China view America? And perhaps more importantly, how does China see itself? We're talking today with Joseph Fusmith, who can help us answer these questions. He's a political scientist who's been studying China for decades. We spoke with my colleague, Rebecca Cruz. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the leader of China, President Xi. China just went through a People's Congress. He was reconfirmed. Do you see his uh, last couple of years have been as being successful? What does the future look like? They've been talking a great deal about reforms internally. It's a little unclear as to how that's going to happen, if at all. Uh, indeed. I would say that uh, Xi Jinping has emerged as the most dominant leader in China well, certainly since Deng Xiaoping and, and some would say since Mao Zedong. Wow. So we're talking 30 years or so yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, uh, the thing about Xi Jinping that I think is worth keeping in mind that is that like Deng Xiaoping, like Mao Zedong in a different way, he's going to be a transformative leader. Uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao were not transformative leaders. Xi Jinping seems to be determined to put his own personal stamp on where China goes from here. And of course, there's considerable 
wonder about exactly what that means. He certainly has centralized a degree of power, and now everybody is asking the question, power for what? Mm. Certainly some of it will be directed externally, as you've suggested, the areas around China, uh, uh, South China Sea, East China Sea. Uh, China will exert more influence throughout Southeast Asia. Um, China certainly sees itself as the center of Asia and moving toward the center of the globe. Are these what we might call kind of nationalistic ideas, or is this come from his, his own personal experience or, or all of the above? Uh, it's nationalism. Uh, you know, if you go to Beijing, uh, there's a, a history museum just off of Tiananmen Square, and they've had for many years now an exhibit on the road to renaissance. And basically, it's the story of modern China, that China was perfect until 1840 when the British came in and launched the Opium War and China started on the so-called century of humiliation. And it was the story that only the Chinese Communist Party could overcome this century of humiliation. And if you ever forget that for even one second, we're right back in that situation that will be a mere economic appendage of the West, a very nationalistic uh, message, um, the historiography of which is rather dubious. Uh, But if you read uh, Xi Jinping's uh, report to this uh, recent party congress, um, it has much of that in it. Uh, So this is – this is where China sees itself as coming out of this uh, period of oppression and never determined never to be in that position again. So he's taking those uh, historical moments and, and capitalizing on them in some ways and, and how they view themselves and their identity. Uh, you wrote a book a couple years ago. You've written several books, but one a couple years ago talking about reform. This was in uh, 2013, The Logic and Limits of Political Reform mm-hmm. in China. If, if by reform we mean political reform. China is becoming less liberal, not more liberal. And why is that? Um, that's what happens when a leader centralizes power. You know, the the book that you just referred to is talking about so-called inter-party democracy, not trying to extend uh, democracy to voters and popular democracy uh, as we have in this country, but just opening the system up a little bit within the party and sometimes in some very interesting ways to have elections uh, within the party for potential leaders, things of that sort. Those elections already died out about a, a decade ago. And uh, Xi Jinping made it very clear that he has absolutely no interest in democracy and feels that the problem with voting is that you might pick the wrong people. Well, it's an interesting uh, situation as you have so many in China risen into the the middle class. We often think that the middle class becomes the base for for democracy or for voting, but the middle class seems to be pretty pretty happy with the status quo or looking forward to some of these uh, changes that the president might be bringing. Well, that's a I think it's a very mixed picture because on the one hand, yes, the middle class has has really. Um, enjoyed a considerable prosperity. Incomes are way up. If you look at the number of tourists, Chinese tourists that are going abroad, it's it's way up. And I think the, the problem that China is going to face is not so much a demand for voting or something like this, but just the fact that Chinese society is so much more diverse now than it was 10, 20, 
certainly 30 years ago, and yet you have this much more centralized uh, political system. And that's a contradiction. That's a tension between those two. And how that's going to work out, I don't know. Um, Certainly there are a lot of people that are in that middle class that will go along with the economic prosperity and the stability, but they – let's say they reserve their opinion about what's going on. Uh, They don't speak up. They don't challenge it. But they're not necessarily persuaded by um, what you see in the political realm. Let me return to our, our, our initial question about the relationship between the United States and China. You mentioned that there is a, an economic relationship and that uh, the United States is often concerned about uh, trade deficits and, and those sorts of things. Thinking about the economics and the politics, should the United States be concerned about a rising China? Is this a threat to the United States? Well, it certainly is a concern. Absolutely. Um, uh it's a very complicated relationship. Uh, for instance, uh, your Apple computer is made in China. Of course. Right? And Apple, an American company, is making a lot of profit off of that. Um, so it's it's not – you know, when you buy that computer, that's counted as whatever it is, uh, $1,000 or whatever in, in a trade deficit. But of that $1,000, Apple has earned quite a bit of money. Uh, so it's a it's a much more complicated issue than the simple trade statistics suggest. But is China becoming a much more dynamic uh, player internationally in the economy? Absolutely. And you know, uh, I have to tell you this: the, one of the things that has really changed the dynamic was the financial crisis in two thousand eight. Um, there's a famous scene of. One of the top financial people in China, a man by the name of Wang Jishan, uh, talking to somebody who knew he knew very well, former Secretary of Treasury Hank, uh, Hank Paulson, and Wang Jishan, Wang Jishan said, "You know, you used to be the teacher, and we learned from the United States for many years, but the teacher made mistakes, and the teacher's not supposed to make mistakes, and we don't have anything to learn from you anymore." Wow. That is uh, incredibly telling. Well, we will obviously continue to watch this relationship as it uh, grows, and uh, certainly we'll uh, anticipate the, the bumpy path to continue going forward. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. A pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to an interview with Joseph Fusmith about China and the United States. He spoke with my colleague, Rebecca Cruz. Worldviews is produced in partnership between KGOU and the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Katie Holland prepares our research, Caroline Halter edited this interview, and produced the show. For Rebecca Cruz, I'm Suzette Rolat. Mm-hmm.